0: As we dive into our passage this morning, though, we are going to be going to two different places. So if I'd encourage you, um, today would be a great day to use a paper Bible because we're going to be spending so much time. So if you don't have a paper Bible with you, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you. It's the black book there next to the the, uh, kind of pinkish colored ones. I think, I don't know, is mauve, Teresa, is mauve the correct color for what those hymnals are? Burgundy, burgundy, okay, we'll go with burgundy. All right, how many say burgundy? How many say malt? No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't matter, it's kind of reddish. So, as you're diving in, though, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to two different places for us, okay? First, we're gonna start in Genesis chapter six, which seems like kind of a weird place for us to start a message out of 1 Peter 3, but it's gonna make sense as we go through this. Now, I'm gonna tell you, this morning's message is gonna be different than most of the messages. It's gonna be a lot heavier on the teaching side of things, so maybe that means I won't yell at you so much. How's that sound? Um, By the way, if you're a guest with us this morning, we want you to know how especially glad that we are that you're here with us. we hope that this has been an encouragement to you already and that as we go through God's word together, that you'll be continue to encourage or continue to be encouraged about how God can work in your heart and in your life in these days. Okay? Now, as we're going through this, like I said, we're gonna start in Genesis 6, and then we're gonna end up and spend most of our time in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're gonna look through a pretty long section of scripture there in 1 Peter 3, so it'll take us a minute to get there. As we're diving in though, with what's interesting about this passage is how many of you Familiar with not the civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr., but the the magisterial reformer, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. Okay, you guys he lived in the 1500s and was a big guy in uh, church history. Martin Luther, real smart guy, said this is the single most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. Okay. If it was hard for Martin Luther, you can only imagine what it's going to be for me. So what we're going to do this morning is, as you read through it, when we get to the First Peter section, you're going to go, if you're not familiar with this passage, you're going to read it and immediately go, huh? Uh, that's all right. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time this morning to just walk through it a little bit at a time and hopefully come out at the end with a coherent picture of what God's telling us out of 1 Peter 3, the end, and then into chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. There is going to be some application along the way and some rationale for why we're doing these things. So just kind of stick with us as we go through a little bit of a different story this morning or different kind of style of message. So as we're diving into Genesis 6, you say, why Genesis 6? Well, Peter is going to reference the story of Noah in his passage that he's talking about this morning. It was a really popular thing in those days. Even among secular folks, they just kind of were fascinated by the story of Noah. And it's kind of the same in our day. It's still one that you hear a lot about and a lot of references to and people painted on their nurseries. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you're getting ready to have a baby, Noah's ark may not be the theme, okay? Um, You realize that like, all but eight people died. That's what the whole thing's about, about judgment and, and you know, I don't know if it, on your mural you're going to paint little people like reaching for, you know, trying to get to the ark. I don't, it's just kind of a morbid story if you really think about it. It is also an incredible story of God's grace. However, because of its popularity, we get a lot of the details kind of fuzzy. So, before we look at it in 1 Peter 3, I wanted to go back and set the stage by reading the actual account out of Genesis about what happened in Noah's day, okay? So, starting over here in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to start, we could pick a lot of different places, but we're going to start in verse 5, okay? Here's what it says When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Man, what an accurate statement. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and the birds of the sky, basically anything that breathes air, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Okay, so here's, this, here's setting the steam for what's going on with Noah is humanity's been going on for a while, and as humanity's been going on, it's gotten worse and worse and worse to where very few people, if not only Noah, there's not many people out there who are following the one true God. Instead, everybody's doing what they think is best, what they want to do, and as it said, that their every inclination of their heart was wicked all the time. That's all that they did was evil stuff, Okay. So God reached a point where he said, I'm, I'm starting over, and I'm going to send a flood. Okay, so pick up in verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. By the way, that would, if that was the epithet for your life, that would be a tremendous way to sign off on your life. Like, if you could put that on your tombstone as talking about you, then you would have lived a successful life. Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the world was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of it. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with all the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms on the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how long you're to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. And then he goes on to describe to, to Noah how he is to construct the ark. Um, by the way, how many of you have been to Kentucky to see the replica? Okay. I would tell you, if you have not I'm sure that every detail about it is not exactly perfect because all we have about exactly, we've got like this little section here that tells us about how God told Noah to make the ark. So there's a lot of gaps that they had to fill in. But one of the things that you notice when you first get there is it's a lot bigger than you thought it Okay, so God tells Noah that he is to build this ark. And in that God is going to send animals representations of each of the species at that time to be able to send them to be on the ark with Noah so that he can preserve life through the ark. And when the flood comes. Okay, there uh, it would have been a miserable experience for the record. I would not have wanted like I don't do well on boats for like a day. I can't imagine being on one for almost a year. Right. So as you go through, uh, you see Noah's day. Wickedness has run rampant. Everybody's hearts are inclined toward evil. And God says, I'm going to judge the world by sending a flood. So he sets aside this guy named Noah. Noah's one of the only ones who's walking with God in that day, if not the only, by the time the flood comes. There's another part that we didn't read that talks about the days of Noah or the days of man will be 120 years. There's a lot of interpretations about what that means. Most likely that means that God gave Noah 120 years to build the ark before the flood came. So Noah's the only righteous guy in a world full of wickedness, building an ark. God's going to save him and these animals through when he sends the flood. Okay? Now, there's lots of other details we can get into with Noah, but that's basically what you need to have in your mind as we turn over to 1 Peter. Okay? Dive in then with me. So go ahead and flip to the other side. You can, by the way, you don't have to keep your finger in Genesis 6. We won't be back there, Uh, but we will spend our time in 1 Peter 3. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open there. All right. So flipping over to 1 Peter 3, we're going to start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in it. A few that is eight people were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Now, if you're not familiar with that passage, did you just go, huh? Because there's a lot here that Peter is drawing from. So let's go through it a little bit at a time and see what, we, what God has to say. Now, as I said, this is a really interesting passage because there's lots of different views out there. I'm not going to present to you the other views out there. I'm just going to tell you where I land on what Peter's talking about here. And if you want to talk about, well, what do other people think? Um, well, Kerry Borkert actually holds a different position than I do on this one. So Kerry would love to sit down with you when he gets back from out of town and talk to you about his position on it. We don't know. So we hold these things in an open hand. I may be right. He may be right. We both, we're probably both wrong. Who knows? But here's what we're going to do. All right. So let's dive in at verse 18, because the rest of this may get kind of confusing at parts, but verse 18 is crystal clear for Christ also suffered for sins. Once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right. This is the key. If you don't catch anything else this morning, if you don't get lost in the weeds of the other stuff, I love digging into that stuff. But if you don't, if you're new to Christianity, this is the central message of the Bible. That God loved you so much that even though we had turned our back on him and we had sinned, Jesus died in our place to bring us back to God. He took my sin on himself and died on the cross. And as we've already sung about, he was buried and he rose from the grave, showing he had paid the penalty for sin and could now offer me life and draw me back to God. So again, if you don't catch anything else out of this, you could stop at verse 18 and you have a great day. Because verse 18 is that kernel that tells us this is what the gospel's all about. This is what the good news that the Bible is all about is that Jesus was willing to suffer for you, the righteous one, who because Jesus had never done anything wrong, for the unrighteous, all of us, that he might bring you to God. Okay? So are we clear on that part? If you're not clear on that part, I would love to have lunch or coffee with you this week. All right? Seriously, that's my favorite thing in the world to talk about. But then it gets to an interesting phrase that I want you to, to note because this is going to become a key element for us that Peter's going to come back to. He's going to come back to the suffering of Christ, but he's also going to come back to this idea here where he says he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. Now, those words flesh and spirit get used some different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's talking about the flesh being kind of that old sinful nature, the the part of us that did the wrong stuff before Jesus saved us, and that part that still kind of wants to do the wrong stuff. But sometimes it simply means in the flesh, in the body, physical life, okay? And same thing with by the Spirit. Sometimes by the Spirit, you'll notice it's a capital S here. Um, at least in the CSB it is. Other translations may render it with a lowercase s, because is it talking about by the Holy Spirit, which would be the capital S, or is it talking about in the spiritual realm, kind of just in the spirit, lowercase s. These are the fun things you get to play with when you go to Bible college and try to figure out, because in the Greek that the Bible was originally written in, it was all caps. There were no uppercase and lowercase. So you have to make a judgment call. Is this talking about the Holy Spirit, or is it talking about in the spiritual realm? Yes, in this instance, okay, for both. What you see is Jesus, when he suffered, he suffered in the flesh. In other words, Jesus was physically put through suffering. If you know the story, you know that Jesus was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He ended up on a cross, uh, crucified with nails through his hands, through his feet. His back was raked open from a whipping that he had received earlier. He physically suffered In the flesh, okay? But when he died, he was buried and rose, and he did raise physically, but when he rose physically, he also rose by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it's neat, because depending on where you go in the New Testament, you see that Jesus raised himself from the dead, the Father raised Jesus, and the Spirit raised Jesus. So which part of God did? It's yes, okay? That's the answer. So Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, Okay. That's why this one's capital S because the Holy spirit raised Jesus. That does not mean that Jesus was not physically raised. Okay. Let's be very clear on that. The Bible is crystal clear that when Jesus came back to life, his physical body was transformed to where there was no stain of sin anymore, but he did physically come back to life and cool thing. He never lost that physical body. There's nothing in scripture that ever tells us that Jesus left his physicality behind. That means he has a physical body with him in heaven right now. So if your picture of heaven is us floating around on clouds, eating cream cheese bagels and harps, that's not exactly what God's plan is. Jesus's physical body is there in heaven with him. Okay, But he was raised by the power of the spirit. Now, keep in mind this flesh and spirit difference that we see there in the physical realm versus the spiritual realm, okay? There is a part of us, we have to understand whether you, depending on how you divide it, people have different ideas there, but there's a part of us that is physical, that is material, and there is a part of us that's immaterial, that's spiritual, that's super. Natural, that's that's different, right? That that's, that's, goes beyond what the, the world has, right? There is something about us that is not just the physical material world in which we live. You are more than just brain chemistry, okay? You're more than just atoms that are running around colliding and will eventually disappear into nothingness. You are created with an eternal, immaterial part that's going to either live forever in heaven with God or be separated from him forever in hell. Okay, so, so there's this part of you that's immaterial. And we'll get to that in just a minute because that's gonna come back up in our discussion. All right, so Jesus is put to death in the flesh, the spirit raised him from the dead. Now, this is where we start looking at Noah. Look at verses 19 and 20 again, in which he, that's talking about Jesus, also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, what on earth is that talking about? Great question. Carrie will give you a different answer. I'll give you a different answer. There may be other folks in here who have a third answer. I don't know. But here's the best of my understanding, looking at the context, here's what I believe the answer to be. I believe that this is referring to Jesus through Noah, through the Holy Spirit, preaching to those who were alive during Noah's day. Okay, That's why we went back to Genesis 6. Think about the context. You've got a wicked world, And you've got Noah, one of the only men, if not the only, following Jesus, following God back in those days for 120 years. In 2 Peter, Peter is going to refer to Noah again, and he's going to refer to him as a preacher of righteousness. So during that time, we don't have any record of any sermons or any teachings of Noah, but at some point during that period, it seems that he was used by God to be a preacher of righteousness to those who were alive in his day. He was an example to them where he believed and trusted God. Oh, by the way, depending on how you read it, it may not have ever rained before the flood. And if that's the case, imagine how crazy Noah would seem. If if I told you that God told me to build an ocean liner in Christiansburg, okay, how many of you would think I was nuts? Imagine For 120 years, God told me to build this giant boat in the middle of the desert, in the middle of a dry, arid area, because there's going to be a flood. What's that? Oh, I don't know. We've never seen one because it's never rained before. It's going to rain, and then I'm going to need to be in this boat. that's in the middle of the dry land. You would have seemed a little crazy, right? Noah, as a preacher of righteousness, is declaring who God is to those around him. He probably got made fun of for that. But Jesus, through his spirit, was proclaiming through Noah in his day about God's plan and what God was doing. Okay? Now, again, that's, there's a difference of opinion of what's going on there, but that, to me, fits the context really well, and we're going to see that a little bit more in a minute. So Jesus is preaching through Noah, a guy who's being pushed to the outside of society for following God. Huh. Doesn't that sound interesting? What's our theme for our our whole study of 1 Peter? Living as exiles. Declaring who God is in a world that doesn't want to listen. That doesn't want to follow. That may think we're crazy. So Jesus, who was raised by that spirit that rose Him from the dead, was preaching through Noah. And by extrapolation, you start to see he's working for us as well. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more interesting, okay? You guys tracking so far? Good? Noah, let see, all right. So in that, in it, end of verse 20, in it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Now, the eight people that it's referring to, if you're not familiar with the story back in Genesis 6, is Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, okay? Um, they were the only eight people who survived the flood. How many of you guys have ever been outside when it's quiet? Like the crickets should be chirping, but they're not. The birds should be chirping, but they're not. Imagine that feeling of getting off of the ark. And it's just the eight of you. And the animals that God put on the ark. And there's only a handful of crickets. There's only a handful of birds. The weight of what they experienced would have been tremendous. But yet God saved them. They were saved through the water. So here's where we get to a, a passage that we would have friends here in town that we disagree with, okay? If, you're, if you've got friends over at uh, Belmont Christian Church or any of the Church of Christ, this is a very important verse, and they interpret it very differently than we do. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. See, we have friends that believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, okay? Those in the church of Christ would teach that, and in other Christian churches, um, with varying degrees of rigidity, will teach that because of this verse. If you read it on the surface, it says, baptism now saves you, period. Period right? Well, that's not what we teach. We teach that baptism is a symbol of what God's already done. It's like my wedding ring, right? So my wedding ring doesn't make me married. If I take this wedding ring off, I am still married happily to Samantha, just like I have been for the last 16 years and a month or so. All right. This ring, however, shows to everybody else that I am married. It says that that there was a day in 2006 when I stood up in front of God and my family and her family and our friends and said, this is the woman that I will pledge to love, to cherish, to protect, to serve for the rest of my life. And so this is a symbol of the commitment that was already made. In the same way, we look at the rest of what the New Testament teaches and see that baptism is that same kind of symbol. It's a picture of outwardly what Christ has done inwardly. We baptize by immersion, which means we put you under the water and we pick you back up. That's what that thing up there for is, that's green, and we're hopefully going to use it in a few weeks because we've got some folks that need to be baptized. Uh, hopefully, we're going to baptize on the 21st, which, by the way, uh, we need to get the baptistry ready for the 21st. Um, that's the notice, all right? As we baptize, folks, what we're doing is we're depicting two things. One, that, you, that Jesus died and was buried, and was raised from the dead. And in the same way, we have died to our old way of life, have been buried, and have been raised from, to that new kind of life. Just like Jesus died and was buried and raised, we too have died to our old way of life, and have been raised to walk in newness of life. Okay, That's what the picture of baptism is all about. So how can I say then that baptism doesn't save us? Because it says baptism saves us. Let's think about the ark for just a minute. Okay, They were saved through the ark, right? They got in the ark, and that was how they lived. But before you ever get in the ark, there's something that has to take place. What's that? Trust. See, Noah and his family had to believe that the way of salvation that God had provided was sufficient for them. They had to be willing to build the ark. They had to be willing to get into the ark. They had to be willing to look like crazy people and identify with God by doing what God said. Really, that's what saved them. It wasn't just the boat. It was the fact that they had placed their trust in God. And as a result of that, they went through the steps that God called them to, which was to build and to inhabit the ark. Now, as we look then at what God's done in us, It's not about the physical symbol. That's what Peter says. It's not about removal of dirt from the body. As grateful as I am for the the town of Christiansburg and the wonderful water that we have, that's all that is, right? There is nothing magic about that. There is nothing spiritual about this. It is just town of Christiansburg water. That is a fiberglass tub with a spa heater on it, okay? That's it. There's nothing magical about it. So it's not about the removal of dirt from the body in the flesh, right? But instead, it's about an appeal to God for a good conscience. It says, God, as I'm being baptized, this is the step you've told me to take because I'm now living out what you've done in me. Just like Noah climbing onto the ark was living out what God had done in him. In the same way, baptism is that outward expression, that outward symbol of what it looks like for us to follow Christ. So it's not that it saves us from sin. It's rather the demonstration of what God's already done. Because really, Jesus is our ark. Jesus is the one who carries us through the water. Jesus is the one who suffered in the flesh and was made alive by the Spirit to draw us back to God. So baptism then doesn't save us from our sin. Rather, it's that public declaration of what God's already done in us. Okay? So we clear so far. What have we said so far? All right. Jesus died in the flesh and was raised by the spirit so that he might draw us back to God. He already had proclaimed things like that through Noah all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. He was using Noah as a preacher of righteousness as he was preaching through his spirit there in Noah's day to those who were disobedient. They chose to be disobedient and continue in their sin, but Noah and his family trusted in God and therefore were saved by entering into the ark and God carried them through and saved them through the flood. In the same kind of way, you and I placing our trust in Jesus is what saves us. That's what carries us through the water because Jesus is the one who's been raised from the dead in the verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So he's the one who saves us spiritually, and one day physically as well, if you get to the end of the story, right? Clear so far. So what do we do with all this? Pick up with me in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Mm. Man, there's a lot right here. We keep coming back to this idea that Jesus suffered in the flesh, and now we start seeing what we're supposed to do with that. First, we have to arm ourselves with that knowledge. How many of you made it to the beach this summer? Okay. Sorry for the rest of you. I'll rub it in a little bit. Get a little sand and salt water in that wound. There's still sand in the back of our van if you need some. You know, when we go to the beach, one of the things that that the kids and I like to do is go stand in the surf. And if you ever had that moment where, like, somebody yells at you from land and you turn around for a second and didn't realize that you were about to get smacked in the back with a wave, you know what I'm talking about? Like, it just totally catches you off guard because you're just looking, what is that? Kaboom! You know, and it just hits you out of nowhere. What are you going to do if you're actually going to go out and stand in the surf? You brace yourself, right? You look and see it coming, you turn sideways to the wave and let it break over you, or you move a little bit, so you just ride the crest up instead of letting it crash down on you. You, know? you don't just stand there and let it hit you over and over again. Same is true if you look outside and you see the trees bending over and you got to get to your car. You, know, you brace yourself against the wind. So what he's saying here is, if Jesus suffered in the flesh, you can guarantee that while we're still in the flesh, while we're still living this physical life, we're going to suffer as well. So you better arm yourself with that. You better prepare yourself with the understanding that you are going to suffer. Now, as Randy talked about this morning, there is joy in that suffering. But at the same time, life is not going to be easy for those who follow Christ. It's just not going to be. Arm yourself with that. Like I said, you know, when you're out in the the ocean there, if if you get blindsided by a wave, it cracks your back, you know? But when you know it's coming, you can brace against it. And it may still take your breath away or might carry you up a little bit. But you can make it. In the same kind of way, yeah, it may take your breath a little bit. But if you're armed for the understanding that you're going to suffer with Jesus, that's part of it, then you're braced for it. You're ready for it. You're dug in. And he says, so that you can be faithful to the end. He's introducing the concept of time here. He's going to bring it back up next week, but look there again at verse one or verse one. So arm yourselves with also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Now here's what that does not mean. It does not mean that let's say you went to work tomorrow and somebody made fun of you for following Jesus. So you could sit there and say, well, Hey, I suffered for Jesus, done with sin, boom, conquered, nailed it. It's not what he's saying. There are some out there who teach a doctrine called sinless perfection, and that's the idea that I could do good enough in my life that I would never sin again. It's not going to happen in this life. We're never going to reach that point of sinless perfection, okay? That's not, again, not what he's teaching here. Instead, what he's saying is our attitude towards sin is, I'm done with it. See, if you're willing to identify with Christ to the point that it costs you something, to where it strains relationships, could even put you in physical harm if things got that bad, when you reach that point of being ready to suffer for Christ like Noah did, you, you have made a break with your old way of life and say, I, I'm done with this because I'm following Jesus no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, I'm going to honor him and I'm going to represent him. And in that sense, you're done with sin. I'm not doing that anymore. Now, you'll still struggle with sin. We'll still fall. We still have to work through our own sanctification and growing in Christ-likeness and and putting these things to death. We still wrestle with it. But in a very real sense, that decision has been made where I'm done with this. Listen to the way he says this. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. We've talked about desire some back in chapter 2. We mentioned that desire doesn't necessarily mean desire for bad things. Desire can be unhealthy desires for good things. You know, I like chocolate, but I can like chocolate too much. And, And a little bit of chocolate's okay, but a lot of chocolate's bad. And the same is true of everything. Those desires that I have may be for a good thing, but it becomes a bad thing because I desire it too much. Peter says the time is done for that. If you're a follower of Christ, stop it. You can't live for your comfort. You can't live for your well-being. You don't live for you anymore. The time for fulfilling those human desires is over, and now you're serving Christ. We looked at Colossians in in our Wednesday night class where it talks about you serve the Lord Christ. That's what you do, right? So, So he said to live with the remaining time. Guys, I could drop dead of a heart attack this afternoon. I have no idea how long I've got left. But I do know that if you're here and you have a pulse, you have a purpose. There's something that God's doing in you and through you. Why not commit to live whatever time you have left? Not for yourself and trying to reach retirement and finally trying to enjoy it, and, but to live with whatever time you have left to be able to fulfill God's will to represent Christ no matter what it costs or no matter where you are. You stay faithful to the end. And he draws a clearer contrast there in verse three. Keep in mind Noah, by the way, as we read this. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Remember, Gentiles are anybody that doesn't follow Jesus in this context. Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. Now, as you're doing this, this different way of living, which is what he shows us this next part, Peter's day is just like ours and it's just like Noah's. We live in a world where everybody's chasing what they want, what makes them feel good, their truth, their happiness. Now, you, you look through it, and you sit there and say, well, that's a pretty big list of sins there. I don't do any of those things because, I mean, look at it. There's some really overt sexual sins there. That's No, nah, I don't do that stuff. That's gross. Before we move on too quickly, let me just lean in for just a second. According to the most accurate statistics I could find from a group called Covenant Eyes, of Christian men and 15% of Christian women have viewed pornography in the last month. 64% of men and 15% of women in the church. When you look at the generations that are coming up, not just within the church, but broadening it out to culture in general, over 90%. Embrace that there's nothing wrong with pornography. Now, it's true that we may not ever attend events where these kind of things would happen. But I'm afraid that in a quiet way, we're still participating in these things. The orgies, the carousing. The time is done for that. I love the way Peter phrases it. There's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. It's got to stop today. It's got to stop now. This is not an area of sin that doesn't hurt anybody but me. It has much broader implications than you can imagine if you've bought into that lie. You know, Randy mentioned that the ladies are starting a small group in September. We're also hoping to start a men's small group in the fall as well. Guys, if you need help with this area, ladies, if you need help with this area, men with men, ladies with ladies, this is not something that you find somebody of the opposite gender to help you with. This is something you really need. As a man, you need a man. As a lady, you need a lady. Find somebody, me or Randy or Mike Montgomery or Tim Repass, Doug Krause isn't here this morning, but he's one of our other deacons. Find one of our deacons. Randy's also in charge of our men's ministry and say, come to them and say, listen, I've got a problem with this and I need help. And we'll start working to try to find a way to, to help you to overcome that. Okay? Okay? Now, again, maybe you're not in that 64% and praise the Lord, but He did also mention evil desires in that list. We talked about those disordered desires before, where I have desires to do things that aren't God-honoring or to fulfill God-honoring desires in dishonoring ways. Stop it. It, The time for that's passed. There's been plenty of time to do what the Gentiles do. Now the question is, am I going to be faithful to the end to live out what God has called me to do and to be? Am I going to be faithful to the end to do his will instead of what I want? People who don't follow Jesus aren't going to understand why you won't join them. By the way, isn't it an interesting choice of words that Peter uses here? Look at verse 4. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. This word isn't used very often in the New Testament. And if you have a King James, it probably translates as excesses. And that's the the metaphorical sense here. But in classical Greek, this word was the idea of the tide that fills the hollows. So this flood of wild living. Interesting that as he's been talking about Noah, he says, they're trying to get you to join in this flood of wild living, isn't it? Because like in Noah's day, when they were devoted to unrighteousness, so too our world is and has been devoted to unrighteousness. It was in Peter's day. It was in the 1950s when Leave it to Beaver was still going. It's been devoted to unrighteousness. In some ways, it's more visible than it used to be. But the reality is every inclination of our heart is evil unless God saves us, just like it was in Noah's day just like it was in Peter's day, and people aren't going to understand it. By the way, this isn't just like a a quizzical curiosity. The word that they they won't understand you is that they will look at you as weird because of it. Like this just does not compute that you wouldn't be okay with this. And they will slander you. Verse 5, they'll give an account to the one who stands up ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. See it again? In the flesh, in the spirit. You see, as you follow Christ faithfully to the end of your life, living to honor him, you very well may be judged according to human standards, while you're in the flesh. People may think you're bigoted. They may call you crazy. They may think that you're wasting your life and wasting your time. They will slander you, and they will slander Christ. And just like Jesus was judged in the flesh according to human standards, so too will you. But, as we've said, there's more to this life than just life in the flesh. Even if we're judged in the flesh according to human standards, we might live to the Spirit according to God's standards. That's what matters, guys. Am I living according to the standards of God? So let's take a little bit of inventory real quick personally. First off, have you recognized that Jesus died and rose from the dead to draw you personally, back into a right relationship with God? Or have you been trying to do this on your own? That, that's the two options. Whether You can paint it however you want, but really that's what it comes down to. Either I'm trying to fix myself and save myself, or I'm trusting in Jesus who's already done it for me. If not, then today you can be saved. Not just when we do a baptism, but today. Because today you can place your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And like the ark carried Noah and his family, the sacrifice of Christ and his work carries us into salvation. Not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done. So if that's where you need to start. If you're here today, though, and you've made that decision, and you know that Jesus is your Savior, he's your Lord, my question for you then is, how are you living this out? Are you faithfully living to follow God's will, to live according to God's standards, or have you gotten sucked into caring too much about life in the flesh and being judged according to human standards? There's been plenty of time to do that stuff. Now, with what time you have left, whether that's five minutes, five years, five decades, live out according to the desire of God, God's will. Now, as we've gone through that, if there's a particular area that God's put his finger on where you're not living that way, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to invite everybody in the room just to bow their head and close their eyes here for just a minute. Now, we're not going to do anything weird. I just like to do that so you have a moment to to kind of tune out some of the other distractions and, and people moving around or anything like that, and just be able to focus on you and God in this moment. Is there one particular area where you've been living for yourself, living for your flesh, living according human desires, worried about what other people might think or how they might judge you, that you need to surrender today and say, God, I want to give up on that. I've still been looking at this area from the wrong perspective. And God, you're right. I've wasted too much time doing that. Would you forgive me? And then God, would you give me the strength? Would you empower me to be able to do what you've called me to do, to honor you in this thing? And and give me one concrete step to take today to see that change take place. Just with your head bowed and your eyes closed, do business with God. If you need to talk with me or or pray with me, you can come down and I'll be down front. If you wanna make these steps an altar, and just spend some time on your knees here, kind of letting the outward posture of your body reflect the inward posture of your heart. You're welcome to come down and do that. We'll give you just a moment to respond, and then we can close in prayer at the end. Father, thank you that Jesus took all of sin on the cross. That he made a way available for me to come to you. That he became the ark that carries me by being the one to perish in the flood himself. He was put to death in the flesh, judged according to human standards, but made alive by the spirit, living according to your standards so that he could draw us back to you. Would you allow us to be folks like Noah? who don't get conformed by the culture, but instead conformed by you to your image, to spend the rest of our days not living for our own human desires, but instead living for you to honor you, to glorify you so that you'd be exalted. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who's making a commitment to walk away from a sin, especially if it's something as, addicting as pornography or a substance abuse or, or something like that, would you work in a way only you can to give them grace and freedom moving forward? We'll give you all the glory for all you do and all you have done. Ask that you'd be with us for your name, for your glory. Thank you for Jesus again. Help us to go out from here resting and rejoicing in him. The fact that we're right with you, not because we were good or because we've overcome this, but because Jesus overcame it all for us. And now we have the privilege of living it out. And it's in his name pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning and wading through this passage with me. I hope you've learned some things, and I hope that God's challenged you and encouraged you. Two quick things as we head out. If you wanted a copy of Questioning Evangelism, which was the book that I mentioned last Sunday, um, I have a handful of copies up here that we ordered this week. They are free. You're welcome to take one. Um, So just feel free to grab one of those if you're interested in that resource. And then the other is to just give you one quick update on some things that happens behind the scenes here at the church. Uh, You guys know a few months we mentioned that Liz Castle was stepping back as our financial secretary. Uh, Liz is still continuing helping with our contributions and things like that. But Morgan Repass was stepping into the role to help with the bookkeeping side of stuff and paying the bills and that kind of deal. And Morgan has hit a stage in life where she's got a lot of really amazing opportunities in front of her that are keeping her busy. And so she's had to step out of that role. And now Jennifer Miller is stepping into that role. So Jen, wave your hand real quick. All right. So this is Jennifer. Um, Jennifer then is stepping in to take on uh, the bookkeeping side of things and all that. So if you have questions about, like, if you've set up a contribution on the church website or any kind of issues with any of that stuff, uh, Jennifer will be the person to talk to about that or any of those things, okay? So just giving you guys an update on that. We're grateful for Morgan and the way that she served. We're grateful for Liz. We're grateful for Jen. We're grateful for all of the people. You guys, you, like, you remember, nobody gets paid here but me, right? So that means Kathy and Stan who come in on Sunday nights or Saturday nights to print the bulletin when the internet's not been fried, um, they do that for free. Daniel does everything he does for free. All these folks who faithfully play the guitar and play the drums and all those things, all do that all for free. All the nursery workers, all, everybody that works here except for me does not get a salary. So if you're grateful for all those that God has put here as volunteers, just a quick round of applause. Yeah. We could not do it without you. And I'm grateful for each and every single one of you. And if I didn't mention you, I'm sorry. I really apologize. I can't get everybody in one quick thing. All right. With that said, we love you guys and hope you have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night at 630 for prayer meeting if you can make it. And if not, Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday. All right. Have a great week, everybody.